Welcome. Today we're going to talk about supplements and specifically fiber. I, by the way, do use psyllium, so I think that might help you know my position on it. I do think there's some questions about exactly how much good it does do, but I don't think there are that many questions about how much harm you can get from psyllium and, and clearly not how much it costs. This is a raggedy looking bag. Here's why. I use psyllium in a smoothie that I make every day. It's a really ugly, it used to taste bad, but I've gotten used to it. It's a, an unattractive smoothie, but you know, it's sort of like the taste that you hate uh, once a day. It's got natto in it, not natto kinase, natto, a source of vitamin K2. It's got several other things in it. I've got a video on that. I'm not going to get too deep into that. But what we will do is get into psyllium and fiber. So on the right, you'll see a couple of the articles that we looked at in terms of developing some of the summary for the science around psyllium fiber. One of them is a, a clinical trial, long-term cholesterol-lowering effects of psyllium as an adjunct to diet therapy in the treatment of hypercholesterolemia. The other one is dietary fiber is beneficial for the prevention of cardiovascular disease, an umbrella review of meta-analysis. Now, there's a, actually a technical term about umbrella review and, and meta-analyses. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to say, basically, it's a relatively good meta-analysis. That's I'm going to leave that at that point on that title. The other thing I'll say is this. As you see in both of these titles, well, at least specifically in the first title, but you get some of that in the second title as well, in the meta-analyses. These studies, and a lot of the studies with psyllium and fiber are based on an assumption that, that was very prevalent 5, 10, 20 years ago, but there's a lot of debate on right now. What assumption is that? That assumption is that the higher your cholesterol, the greater your heart attack and stroke risk. So as you know, that whole argument is now a debate and it gets into some further detail like, wait a minute, which cholesterol, total cholesterol, remnant cholesterol, LDL? You know, I think at the end of the day, I think very few of us are going to argue that remnant cholesterol is a problem. Most of us would argue that HDL is a good thing to have. A lot of people would say uh, it's neither good nor bad. It doesn't help. It's just a marker. We're not going to talk about that debate today either. But the real big debate in terms of cholesterol is LDL really a risk factor. Just to let you know, in full disclosure, from my perspective, what's my position in that area? I don't think it matters nearly as much as 99% of doctors out there. I don't completely agree, though, with some folks like, I think it's Nir Ali, he's a doc cardiologist that you'll find on YouTube where he says no higher LDL is better. I think that's a fairly weak case, but I do think this, simple, easy logic. Half the people having a heart attack have an LDL that's a little bit higher than the standard recommendation. So it's outside of normal, and that doesn't make sense. The other half, here's why it doesn't make sense, because the other half have cholesterol levels, LDL levels would be considered, quote, totally normal, totally no risk, yet they're having a heart attack. So there's something going on. And the fact that it's almost half and half also indicates that 
the levels of LDL that we focus on tend to not be as big a driver as most of us think. So let me just add one other distinction in this area, though. There's a thing called FH, familial hypercholesterolemia. And given what I do, you might imagine I've got a lot of patients with that. Now, these people have determinants or one of the key diagnostic risk factors is having an LDL 180 or above, not total cholesterol, LDL 180 above or above with or without statins. So those folks, again, just brief genetics in that space, they're about 2000 SNPs, SNP meaning single nucleotide polymorphism. A lot of people think of that as a mutation. It's not really a mutation. We're not going to get into all that either, but it is a genetic variation. There's about 2,000 genetic variations that lead to familial hypercholesterolemia. And I can tell you, when these people have LDL levels of 200, 300, 350, 400, there does appear to be some added risk. But even then, the sum is the key point here. Most of these people even though they have these high levels of LDL, tend to not have their heart attacks until they start getting other risk factors like smoking, like most often insulin resistance. So just to help you understand, I don't necessarily buy some of the assumptions that go into the majority of the research around psyllium. It's not just cholesterol. They look at other things as well, like death rates. So we'll start getting a little bit deeper into this as we get into the details. So getting enough fiber on a low-carb diet, according to some people, is hard. I don't think so. In fact, what I would suggest is that I have plenty of people, you know, this whole debate about plant-based versus animal-based. And I have a lot of people that see me, a lot of my patients, plant-based, vegan, you name it. And they also say, well, it's impossible to go low-carb on a plant-based diet. No, it's not. In fact, I've gone through episodes just to demonstrate it, and I've got a lot of patients who do it all the time who are completely vegan, but also still low-carb and even keto. So a lot of people that are plant-based and low-carb, even people who are the ultimate plant-based, as in vegan, and the ultimate low carb as in keto. So you can do that. I know I'm maybe conflating two different issues. They're saying getting enough fiber. The bottom line is you can get enough fiber on a low carb diet. Study number one, eligible subjects, men and women with serum LDL cholesterol concentrations between 3.36 and 4.91. These are obviously the rest of the world, not the US numbers millimoles per liter. They were randomly assigned to receive either five grams of psyllium or a cellulose placebo two times daily for 26 weeks while continuing diet therapy. In the results, you saw a serum total and LDL cholesterol concentrations, 4.7% lower and 6.7% lower in the psyllium group than in the placebo group after that 24 to 26 week period. The probability of that happening is just a pure random chance is about, or it's less than one in a thousand. That's what P is less than 0.001. That's what that means. Other outcome measures did not differ significantly between groups. 
So that is one of the key study types that you'll see when you hear people say psyllium or fiber has been proven to decrease heart attack and stroke risk. From my perspective, that's a, that's not a, a huge in, change in total and LDL cholesterol. It's clearly not enough change to translate into a major impact on life expectancy. So again, that's what you tend to see. I don't put a lot of weight on all of those studies that are in that category. Here's study number two, a PubMed search from January 1, 1980 to January 31, 2017 was conducted using the following search strategy, fiber or glucan or psyllium or fructans and meta-analysis or systemic review. So only the English language PubMeds were used. It provided quantitative statistical analysis on cardiovascular disease, lipid concentration, and blood concentrations. You're seeing I'm talking about, this is where they're getting into studies which show a little bit more of a end result as opposed to just looking at LDL and trying to assume that that's going to drive end results. So the result on uh, study number two, all 31 meta-analyses comparing highest versus lowest dietary fiber intake reported statistically significant reductions in the relative risk of cardiovascular disease mortality. Relative risk was 0.77 to 0.83. In other words, People that had higher levels of fiber in their diet were about, had about four-fifths or 80% of the cardiovascular disease mortality rate as people that did not have fiber. That's the information that I look at and say, hmm, I've heard both sides of this argument to me it's still a little bit soft, but not that soft. That to me is enough to say, you know what? The taste I hate once a day. Here's some other things that they looked at as well. Coronary heart disease, again, 0.76 to 0.93, you know, 80 to 85% relative risk or uh, disease rates there and stroke as well. So again, that makes you think that it is having an impact on vascular health. The fact that you're seeing it with cardiovascular disease, coronary heart disease, and stroke. Meta-analyses on supplementation studies using beta-glucan or psyllium fibers also reported statistically significant reductions in both total serum and low-density lipoprotein cholesterol concentrations. Again, that last sentence where they're looking at cholesterol again, I understand why they are. If I were doing that study, I would look at that as well, if that information were available. But I'd end up the same way I end up now, knowing or at least given the position that I have, that LDL is maybe not a major driver, probably not a major driver. Not sure what to do with that information. So as we know, LDL is important, but not nearly as important as carbs and cardiovascular inflammation. The greater issue here is reduced glucose absorption and decreased insulin secretion. That's one of the things you begin to wonder. Is that what's going on? Is fiber actually decreasing our absorption or in some other way impacting glucose metabolism? Significant fiber in the diet is seen as decreasing the glycemic index of food, 
which may again be the issue, decreasing absorption, therefore decreasing the insulin response, therefore decreasing the concentration of both glucose and insulin in the bloodstream, both of which are very inflammogenic or inflammation causing. It decreases the swings in glucose. With cardiovascular inflammation is number one cause of heart attack and stroke. Swings in blood sugar are by far the number one cause of cardiovascular inflammation. Things begin to make a little bit more sense. There's also the gut biome issue, which may also speak to insulin resistance. And if you don't know what that's talking about. There have been studies where you see that in terms of fecal transplants, both in lab animals and in humans, where the donor of a fecal transplant had diabetes or significant prediabetes, the receiver, that fecal transplant will often result in prediabetes. So in other words, there's something in our gut biome that tends to drive insulin resistance as well. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.